Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. You have Brian and Jeff as usual. And Jeff, we're going to be continuing on with our study of traditions of men versus the Word of God. Kind of a, an interesting series for us to take a look at some of uh, the larger mainstream religions and what they believe. Well, and hopefully our listeners will kind of get a sense of as you said, various religious denominations and a comparison or contrast between what they teach and the Word of God. And I, the th one thing I might add is, you know, we're not trying to be critical or picky or, you know, judgmental in this series, but we do want to try and stick as close to God's Word as we can. Uh, and and when we you know, depart from that or deviate from it or have various religious groups that do that, you know, we want to be able to very succinctly say, hey, this isn't right, and we need to get back to what is right. Yeah, great point, and especially because there's so much confusion when you think about the thousands, literally thousands of different religions around the world. In fact, that we get lots of questions about various religious beliefs, and it's just confusing when there's so much out there, so many different thoughts and doctrines and so forth. So in our last episode, you know, when we started this series, one of the things that we kind of said early on was that, you know, the reason why we want to have this series of studies that we're calling the traditions of men versus the word of God is to just understand once again, you know, why are there so many religions today? Can all of these religions be acceptable to God? And so in that episode, we examined some of the reasons why so many of these religions exist. And we looked at for instance, some terms like traditions, because it's an important term for a lot of these religions. And so we kind of looked at what's common about a lot of the traditions in man-created and even women-created religions. And then we compared them to the Lord's Church. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that podcast, I would encourage you to go back. Because what we try to do is set the stage of, well, what does the church look like according to the Bible? What are the traditions that we see in the Bible that are acceptable versus traditions and religions and practices that man has put in place over the years? And so, as we touched on already, you know, as we continue this series, we now want to start evaluating some of the mainstream religions by comparing their stated beliefs with the Word of God to see if they match or are contrary. And as Jeff said, this isn't an attack against any religions. All we're doing is simply looking at what they have stated are their beliefs and their own creeds, and we're comparing it to God's Word, and we'll see if it matches. We just want to be fair about it. And so this isn't about our opinion. It's about what does the Bible teach? What do they profess is the truth as well? And so one of the things that's important is we want to always be able to understand the truth to the point where we can recognize any type of error. So you can imagine how laborious it would be if you we might say to understand all the major tenets and all the elements of all the different religions in the world that would just take an incredible amount of time and so what's more relevant i think more important is to understand the truth like second timothy 2 15 talks about where we study to show ourselves approved unto god you know worker that does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of god so if you have a good base understanding of the truth then you can recognize false teaching without necessarily having to understand all the tenets of that religion. 
And so just want to encourage, you know, once again, it's it's good to look at some of the mainstream points in the sense that when you're speaking to somebody and they're bringing up something about their religion, yeah, it can be certainly helpful to understand kind of where they're coming from. But I guess my point is we don't need to dig in and and just really understand every element of it if we understand the truth. Okay, so the Bible also teaches us that we should expose any doctrine that is contrary to the law of Christ. In Ephesians 5, verses 6 through 13, beginning in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were once darkness, but you are now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So we have that responsibility. He goes on to say, verse 11, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. So one of the things we see in the Bible is this reference to light and how light is comparable to the truth. It exposes, much like in the physical world, you have a flashlight or you turn the light on, it exposes everything in a room. Well, the Bible makes this point over and over, that the light of the gospel, the truth, exposes error. And any error is made manifest, is exposed by that light. So today we want to consider the, the religion of Catholicism. And really, if you look at all the mainstream religions in the world, Catholicism is really the oldest one. And it really has been the largest religion in the world for many years, although we see today that Islam is quickly approaching Catholicism by size. Now, one might think that the size of religion, you know, kind of surely means it's in the Lord's church or it is the Lord's church. In fact, my mother was raised a Catholic, and she actually went to school when she was younger to become a nun. And when she studied the gospel with my great uncle, who was a gospel preacher, one of the points that she made to him was, well, how can this religion be wrong? It's the largest religion in the world. It just kind of seems to make sense. Wouldn't this be the religion? Well, yes, it's large. And in fact, there are today, if you look around the world, there are six religions with over 100 million followers, and there are 20 religions with over a million followers. So we would have to ask, well, does the popularity or size of these religions prove these are the Lord's church? And I think we would all have to answer, well, no, that the size and popularity of religion does not make it the Lord's church. It's what they practice. In fact, Jesus touches on this. Jeff, you want to read Matthew chapter 7 for us? Let's just look at 13 through 20, if you would, so we can see what Jesus said about this concept or this principle. Certainly. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Yeah, what a nice section of scripture here where Jesus talks about the contrast, if you will, between the narrow gate and wide gate. And when we think about anything that's popular, 
if it's popular, there's most likely going to be a large following, whether it's in religion or just a lot of different principles in life. But Jesus here is speaking specifically about many will take the easy road, the broad road, the popular road. So when we think about a large religion or large religions, that fits that definition of following that broad way. But he's talking in verse 14 about when you think about the truth and those who are really, really focused on following his words and following his church or being a part of his church, it's a narrow and difficult way. Why? Not because what he's asking is hard, but it's because many refuse to do what the Lord requires, and therefore that becomes a very narrow path. And then he warns in verses 15 through 20 about false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but really they're ravenous wolves. And the, the key point he makes in that section is by their fruits, you will know them. What are the fruits he's talking about? What they teach, what they practice, seeing if it compares to what God would have them to do, or if it's, if it's what God is asking them to do, or is it something that's a completely different fruit, if you will. So that's really what we want to do now, is examine the fruits of the Catholic religion, see how it compares with the good fruit of the Bible. So Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. So where we want to start is origins, you know, origins of the Catholic Church. Now, certainly Catholicism will claim to have been Jesus' church, you know, from the first century onward. Is that claim true or not? And, and that's where we have to, you know, go back into history, uh, mostly secular history, and kind of understand whether or not that claim is true and they are the true church or whether they've departed from the original true pattern. So, first of all, if we go into 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we see even at the time of the apostles, there were uh, predictions, prophecy, that there would be departures from the faith, apostasy, falling away, etc. Specifically, 1 Timothy be in chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So what we need to be careful of as we move forward from, you know, first century, second century, third century, etc., to be, you know, pay particular attention to, you know, was there a departing from the true pattern uh, and a, quote-unquote, a falling away kind of thing. So one of the things that we see pretty early on in the secular record is that there was a lot of uh, departure in terms of the organization and governance of the church. Paul, during his travels, a special instance, called together the elders of Ephesus uh, in Acts uh, chapter 20. And notice carefully what he says regarding the future. Uh, beginning with Acts 20, verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. And of course, as we then begin to look into secular history, we start to see, among other things, a departure from the pattern in terms of the 
you know, structure and governance, if you will, you know, who's in charge, if you will, you know, of local congregations. So as we move forward from the first century, we see a number of departures from the faith. For example, we see men who desired, you know, preeminence, you know, amongst others, you know, within you know, local congregations, and they sought to alter the organization of the church with you know, various levels of hierarchy beyond the local congregation. And soon these men started to see themselves, if you will, as successors to the actual apostles. Uh, in addition, we see men starting to uh, change or alter you know, the law of Christ via various groups or councils or you know, calling people together to make decisions. In fact, in uh, 325 AD, we see Constantine recognizing what was called the Council of Nicaea you know, as official law. Uh, an official lawmaking assembly with the power to decide or change God's word. And of course, since then, various other councils have brought about many changes to the worship, to moral standards, to the organization of the church, etc. So we now have the injection of various human-led uh, meetings, if you will, that are starting to legislate for the church. Uh, in terms of preeminence, by the time we get to roughly 600 AD, uh, we have a person by the name of Boniface who has proclaimed himself the universal bishop, you know, bishop of bishops uh, across all the different congregations. And of course, that sets the precedence for subsequent popes, which is, you know, unknown to the scriptures. Continuing forward in time, you come to what's sometimes called the Great Schism of 1054. Uh, a major split between the uh, eastern part of the Catholic Church and the western part of the Catholic Church, with the eastern part becoming known as the Greek Catholic or Greek Orthodox Church, and the western part becoming the you know, Holy Catholic uh, uh, Apostolic, or sometimes called the Roman Church, or the Holy Roman uh, Empire, actually what it grew into, and some of the things that they, you know, struggled over, there were sources of division, uh, as we mentioned, struggling over the organizational structure of the church with the West's claim for superiority of the Pope in Rome over the entire church. Uh, celibacy of the priesthood uh, was another issue. Use of unleavened versus leavened bread for the Lord's Supper and, and others as well. Continuing forward with time, you have the Vatican Council of uh, 1870 which proclaimed the doctrine of papal infallibility, saying that the Pope is incapable of error. So, you know, in a, in a small nutshell, what we see is, you know, Christ set up his church, first century, you know, error creeps in, it starts to depart from the faith, it eventually emerges from that process as something we would recognize as the Catholic Church with its hierarchy of priests, with bishops, with archbishops, with cardinals, with the Pope, splitting into two major divisions, East versus West. And, you know, there you have the, the modern Catholic Church. Brian, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, quite a storied history for the Catholic Church. And you had mentioned, Jeff, the changes that were made in what we might call church government or the organization of the church. You know, we did a two-part series for those of you that are interested in 
hearing about what does the Bible say about how the church should be organized. And so on our website, biblequestions.org, if you click on the podcast page, we have an index by subject of different subjects we've covered. And under church government, you'll see there was a two-part series we did on the organization of the church. Or if you're using like a podcast player and you want to go look for those episodes, it's uh, way back in episode 17 and 18. We did a two-part series where once again, we looked at what the Bible said as it relates to how the church should be organized so that you have sort of a point of comparison to what the Catholics and others, for that matter, have done. Well, you know, Jeff, one of the key elements of the Catholic church is tradition. And of all of the churches that really lean on tradition, I would say Catholicism is probably number one. And we'll get into that more in a moment. But when we think about this idea of tradition, let's just kind of define what that word means. So in the Greek, it comes from a Greek word that means transmission, a precept, especially the Jewish traditionary law, ordinance, or tradition. So that's in the Bible how it's defined. If you look at a dictionary definition, I've got a couple here from Merriam-Webster. One is an inherited, established, or customary pattern of thought, action, or behavior such as a religious practice or a social custom. Second definition in that dictionary, the handing down of information, beliefs, and customs by word of mouth or by example from one generation to another without written instructions. So we might say that's oral tradition. Now, just a couple of examples in the Bible on the negative side of traditions that men established that were contrary to God's will. Jesus indicated the Pharisees and scribes were creating these types of traditions. In fact, we looked at this example in our first podcast in this series. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 13, Jesus says that they were making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, he says, which you have handed down and many such things you do. So in that example we talked about last time, you had the Pharisees and scribes who were refusing to help their parents who were in need because they were saying it was more important to give the gift they had to God. And so Jesus rebuked them for that. On the positive example, traditions aren't always bad if it's you know passed on as it relates to the truth. So over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul here says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So when you had the apostles teaching the truth, those were the kinds of traditions that they would want to pass down because it was the truth that they were passing along. So when you look at the Catholic Church and you think about this, you know, the importance of tradition, I have a few quotes here from a writing called Tradition in the Roman Catholic Church from a gentleman by the name of Greg Littmer. And his quotes really give us some insight into the Catholic mindset. So here's the first one. Tradition plays an important role in the belief and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. For the Roman Catholic, there's great comfort to be found in the idea that a particular belief or practice has always been believed or practiced by their church. This is a major reason why non-Catholics have such difficulty understanding how Catholics can believe and practice things that are obviously not found in the Bible. Under the Roman Catholic system, Bible authority is not absolutely necessary. The church teaches it, believes it, and practices it. Therefore, it is true. A second quote, he says, while a Roman Catholic, I could not understand why non-Catholics were always bringing up the Bible and trying to disprove my beliefs by it. 
Certainly the Bible was important, but to my mind, it did not present all the truth necessary. To grasp all of the truth, one had to accept both the Bible and Roman Catholic tradition. I believe that the leaders of the church knew what was best, that they had always known what was best, and that when something new was defined and added to the tradition, that it was the truth plainly and simply. So, Jeff, this is pretty revealing, isn't it? When you think about why, you know, you look at the mindset of someone who is a Catholic. Well, and to add to that a little bit, if you have a human head over the church, a.k.a. the Pope, if that person is the spokesman for Christ, you know, the vicar of Christ, basically they can provide ongoing, or at least claim to, provide ongoing revelation, ongoing changes, uh, and issue new directions to Christ's church as his representative on earth. And then when they speak on such you know, formal behalf uh, of Jesus, as we said back in uh, 1870, you know, they are infallible. So yeah, it's not surprising that the Catholics would, you know, change over time, you know, based on these alleged inspiration, miraculous inspiration of their leader. Yeah, and it's interesting how that's kind of a common trait in a lot of religions in the sense that when they have their own creeds, it's often because they say the Bible is not enough or the Bible's been corrupted. You know, my mother, when I was talking to her about her Catholic beliefs before she was converted out of that, once she studied the truth, she said that any time that she looked at Catholic creeds or anything that was published by the Catholic Church, there was a certain stamp or seal, she told me, that she looked for. And if it had that stamp or seal, then she knew it was quote-unquote official as it relates to the Catholic Church, and she knew that it was good to follow. So, once again, it's it may be hard for anyone who has only used the Bible as their source of authority over the years to understand like, well, how could somebody just not see plainly that it can only be the Bible? Well, this gives you an idea because they've been told once again, the Bible's not complete or the Bible, we, we need additional or maybe in some cases more modern revelation or changes based on the society we live in today. And so therefore, whether it's the Pope or the official office that publishes doctrine for Catholics, you need to follow that. And so one of the creeds that has been important in the Catholic Church for years is the Catechism. So I've got a couple of excerpts here from the United Catholic Catechism for Adults. And so when you think about, you know, the thought process that we were just talking about, it's really reflected in Catholic creeds. And so in the 20th century, there was an effort to what was called a Protestant fundamentalism movement which emphasized the need to adhere only to the Bible. And so when we get into Protestant religions in our next episode, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But when that movement arose and there was this emphasis once again to only use the Bible for the source of authority, well, that was addressed. And so when you look at the faith professed, that creed from the Catholic Church, it talks here about, you know, the church's response to fundamentalism is that revelation is transmitted by apostolic tradition and scripture together. The church and apostolic tradition existed before the written New Testament. Her apostles preached the gospel orally before writing it down. The apostles appointed bishops to succeed them with the authority to continue their teaching. Well, let me just pause there and say, well, that's not true. And we know it's not true because that would be in the scriptures if the apostles 
did in fact appoint the kinds of bishops we see in the Catholic Church. Now you could say, well, wait a minute. There were elders known as bishops in the church. That is true. But the bishops that you see in the Lord's church, as defined in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, are not the bishops that you see in the Catholic church. So anyhow, we'll, we'll get more into that. But the apostles, it says here, appointed bishops to succeed them with the authority to continue their teaching. Scripture alone is insufficient. Authoritative teaching is also needed. That is given to us by the church's teaching office. Catholics then, it goes on to say, accept scripture and tradition as one sacred deposit of the word of God. Although this sets us apart from those who believe only in the Bible as their source of revelation, Catholics accept and honor both scripture and tradition with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it, Jeff, as far as that, once again, that mindset of using both. Well, and actually of ongoing revelation, so yes. to speak, as in the apostles allegedly appointed or anointed these bishops and gave them the power to continue to reveal God's word and guide the church in an ongoing. So you get into the second, third, fourth centuries and what these alleged successors of the apostles are, are teaching. You know, that's like Jesus teaching. That's like the apostles teaching. Uh, and sometimes they wrote it down, and sometimes it was just oral. It's a combination of you know ongoing revelation. They claim that's right. I mean, even within the scriptures and the teaching of the first century, indeed, before the entire complete you know New Testament was written down, you know, notice the emphasis on authority. You know, Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verses eighteen through twenty, uh, where it says, uh, "Jesus speaking, all authority has been given to me." Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Uh, John 12, 48, he rejects me and does not receive my words. Of course, this is Jesus speaking. Uh, has that which judges him, the word I have spoken, will judge him on the last day. Uh, Acts 5, 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Uh, and even Acts 17, verse 11, Talk about those in Berea were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, that they received the word, of course, this is you know teaching from Paul and company, with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Again, an emphasis on comparing what was taught with what was you know available. Of course, at that time would have been the you know Old Testament writings and predictions about the you know coming Messiah, uh, etc. But again, an emphasis on you know things written. And certainly we have that, you know, emphasis, you know, continued in the other writings, you know, of the apostles and inspired prophets in the New Testament. That's right. And those are great passages that really say, okay, well, in contrast, what does the Bible say? That there's only one source of authority, and that's the law of Christ that we live by and will be judged by. One other passage I'll throw in there, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9 where it talks about that day of judgment where Jesus will come in flaming fire with his angels and will punish those who do not know or obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says. So that's the standard that we will be judged by. Now, another Catholic belief, and we'll kind of start walking through some of these different Catholic beliefs. One is that man is not able to interpret the Bible that the Pope and bishops must do so. Now, if you go through and read all the Catholic creeds, they encourage people to read the Bible. Sometimes there's this misnomer out there that they don't want anybody to read the Bible. No, they absolutely encourage the reading of the Bible. They no doubt do. But 
when it comes to interpreting the Bible, they're very clear that not just anybody should interpret the Bible, but that the Pope and bishops must do so. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church that we were talking about offers an explanation of how a Catholic is to interpret the Bible. So notice this quote, Sacred Scripture must be read and interpreted with the help of the Holy Spirit and under the guidance of the magisterium of the Church according to three criteria. Number one, it must be read with attention to the content and unity of the whole of the Scripture. Two, it must be read within the living tradition of the Church. Three, it must be read with attention to the analogy of faith, that is, the inner harmony which exists among the truths of the faith themselves. So some might ask, well, what is this magisterium? What does it mean? What is that talking about? Well, the magisterium is the official teaching office of the church, the Catholic church, including the pope and the bishops in union with that office. And so they're basically saying, you know, here's the criteria. You need to allow them to interpret it for you and then tell you what it means. The Council of Trent basically released this statement, and that is, if the sacred books are permitted everywhere, it goes on to say, in the vernacular, there will arise more harm than good. Now, there's no doubt people, all of us, can misinterpret Scripture. But when we look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't say that it's the responsibility of anybody other than ourselves to properly interpret the truth. So early on, we talked about 2 Timothy 2.15, where it says, in the New King James Version, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So that's talking about you and I individually. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 11, and I won't read this whole section here, but if you make a note of that, Second Peter 1, verses 2 through 11, you'll notice there's several key statements in here. Number one in verse 3, that God has given us, according to verse 2, it's talking about you know, the knowledge of God and our, uh, Jesus, our Lord, has given us, verse 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness. So that speaks to the fact that we don't need other creeds or other writings. But it's also talking about it's given each one of us that knowledge. And then if you go on down to verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, so it's talking about with diligence in verse 5, adding to your faith things like virtue, knowledge, self-control, and so forth, Verse 8 says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this whole section talks about how it's our responsibility to add spiritual qualities to our life. Well, how can we do that? We can only do that by reading God's Word and understanding what these spiritual qualities are and then understanding how we should add them to our lives. And then verse 10 in this section of 2 Peter 1 says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling election sure. So once again, putting the responsibility on us to study and make application. We have the example of those in Berea. They compared anything that they were being taught with the scriptures. So it says in Acts 17, verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So they had the responsibility, once again, to ensure what they were being taught was in the truth. And so Philippians 2.12 says that we are all to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And then finally, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, 
It goes on to say, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what we have in the scriptures was revealed by the Holy Spirit, and it is not subject to private interpretation in that we should have, once again, the Pope or an official office of any religion telling us what it means. So, Jeff, anyhow, these passages make it pretty clear, doesn't it, that it's our responsibility to learn and understand the truth. True. And while you were talking, I was reminded of what Jesus said to I think his audience and using the example of, you know, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? You know, I know some people that might say, well, you know, the priest teaches thus and so. And, you know, if we follow them and they're wrong, you know, that's on them. Well, not according to Jesus. Because if you're you're led into error, then both the teacher and those who follow them are wrong uh, and will be, you know, will quote unquote fall into the ditch, you know, figuratively speaking. Speaking of, you know, being led, as we've kind of already mentioned, you know, within Catholicism, at least Roman Catholicism, you know, they acknowledge that the Pope or claim that the Pope is the head of the universal church. And of course, Catholic means universal that the Pope has authority on earth, you know, to, to guide the church. Now, when you turn to, you know, the scriptures, and of course they would say, you know, that started with Peter as the head of the church, you know, under Jesus and continues on based on apostolic succession. What does the Bible have to say? Well, certainly there is something, an interesting quote, you know, over in Matthew chapter 16, which I'll kind of, you know, pick various verses beginning with, uh, Verses 13 through verse 20 of Matthew 16. And of course, Jesus, within the context, is, is interrogating his disciples, asking, you know, who do people say that I am? Uh, and Peter eventually responds in verse 16 to Jesus' question, well, who do you say that I am? You know, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 18, but I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And of course, from that, Catholics would say that, well, Jesus is anointing Peter, if you will, as the rock, as the foundation, and that Jesus is going to build his church on the rock, build his church on Peter. Problem is, that's not consistent with, you know, the underlying language, where, you know, Peter is, you know, the underlying word for Peter is rock, masculine when jesus says on this rock i will build my church that rock is i can't remember if it's feminine or if it's neutral but it's not masculine so he's not talking about peter he's talking about his confession of jesus as the christ that's the foundation of his church you know the keys you know we certainly see peter doing that on the day of pentecost acts 2 uh in terms of preaching the word that what has been bound in heaven peter is binding on earth not that Peter had legislative ability. We also see that Christ is the head of the church in you know, Colossians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 18. Head of the body, the church. Beginning with Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, you know, Christ, he is the head of the body, head of the church. Uh, verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And even interestingly enough, Peter, while he was alive, would not allow himself to be worshipped. You can read that over in Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. 
where as Peter was coming in, uh, Cornelius met him, a notable Gentile, fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. Of course, you can see, you know, modern press coverage of people, you know, bowing down in front of the Pope, kissing his ring, etc. You know, Peter wouldn't allow that. Certainly not acting like a modern Pope. Uh, likewise, we see in terms of organizational structure, elders are, be, are to be appointed to lead you know, local congregations, Titus 1.5. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, some of the early departures from the church were led by you know, elders, you know, gathering men after them, Acts 20, verse 28. Also, interestingly enough, Brian, Peter was married, uh, Matthew 8, verse 14, which modern popes are forbidden. And even Peter was condemned by Paul, uh, Galatians chapter 2 which sounds like, you know, a total turnabout. You know, Paul condemning, you know, Peter, the quote-unquote head of the church, the rock upon which the church was built. No, Peter was just another apostle, just like the other apostles, just like Paul. Brian, any thoughts? Yeah, and you know what's interesting also, when you look at the first pope we were talking about in 600, it was like 608, if I recall correctly, Pope Boniface declared himself to be pope. We don't see this link back so you'd have to also ask well what happened in the several hundred years from the first century from peter until the first declared pope why wouldn't we have a record of those popes and you know you could look at like the qualifications right there are no qualifications listed for pope if the bible took all the time to specifically list out qualifications for elders and even deacons well surely the head of the universal church if it was the pope you would have qualifications for that there's nothing in the bible about Oh, and as, as we hinted at earlier, you know, there was a gradual growth of the church's organizational structure from just a plurality of leaders in a local congregation to the elevation of a single person they would call bishop. And then as congregations grew outside of cities, out into the country, you had city bishops and country bishops and the country bishops starting to defer to the city bishops. And then as major metropolitan areas, the bishop over that particular area, like within Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, you know, again, they start vying for, you know, power and prestige. Again, growing out of what was a very simple organizational structure provided in the New Testament. Yeah, that's right. I think cardinals, right, came along at some point. And, you know, there's a belief also, we'll shift gears now and talk about priests and how... There's a belief that, you know, you still we still have priests today as in similar to what we had under the old law. And so, you know, if you look at Catholic beliefs, they believe that, that you know, priests are another Christ, another means of access between the sinner and God. That's why you have like confessionals and confession booths, if you will, where somebody goes in and tells, you know, their priest who they call father, you know, I've sinned. Well, what does the Bible say about that? The Bible tells us that there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came to this earth as a man. The scriptures tell us he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And so therefore he makes the perfect mediator because he can relate to us as human beings. But there is no other mediator. First Timothy 2 verse 5 makes that very clear, that one mediator between God and men, and it's Jesus. And not only that, but the scriptures, especially in the book of Hebrews, talk a lot about how Christ is our permanent priest and has an unchangeable priesthood. 
So over in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, it says, Also there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus makes intercession for us when we pray to God. It's not some man on earth. In fact, the Bible even takes it a step further and teaches us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that all Christians are priests. So notice 1 Peter 2 verse 5. It says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, talking about Christians, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So we talk a lot, Jeff, about context, right, and how we need to look at the context of what the scriptures are teaching. In 1 Peter 2, this is the context talking about Christians. So Christians are priests. There's not someone designated like they were under the old law to be a priest for a church, for instance. As Jeff touched on earlier, the structure for the management, if you will, of a church, a local congregation are elders, a plurality of men, so in other words, more than one, that are qualified, according to 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, to watch over the souls in that church. And that's the structure of the Lord's church. Now, there's another Catholic belief that everyone is expected to call priests father. Well, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 9, Jesus says, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. So God is our father. And then other than our physical father, of course, on this earth, spiritually we only have God as our father. And then one other belief uh, in this area, Jeff, and then I'll turn it over to you, is that the priests have power to forgive sins. And that's according to the Council of Trent and Laterian Council of 1215. Well, the Bible says that no man has power to forgive sins, only God and Jesus. So one example, Mark 2, verse 6, and some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man, talking about Jesus, speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk? Verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. So Jesus had healed a man that was paralyzed. They didn't like what he talked about as it relates to being able to forgive sins, but he made it clear. He had the power to forgive sins, and of course God does as well. Verse John 1, 9 tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So a priest does not have the power to forgive sins. In fact, even under the old law, they had to go on behalf of, of the people to God. They didn't have the power under the old law to forgive sins. So anyhow, we can see how that's a man-made doctrine. Jeff? So I guess a, a key point I'll footstomp. Now, certainly we've seen a departure from the New Testament pattern in terms of the organization of the church, special clergy, the priesthood, 
various other levels of the hierarchy, a human head over the church, you know, none of which is within scripture. But there's another major area, and that's what we might call the plan of salvation. As the Catholic Church followed the plan of salvation as revealed in the New Testament. And unfortunately, the answer there also has to be no. One notable area uh, in the general subject of what we would call baptism. The Catholic Church teaches what they would call baptism of infants. Uh, got a quote here. Infant baptism has been practiced since apostolic times, they claim. Infants need to be baptized because through this sacrament, they are freed from original sin and are welcomed into the community of the church where they have access to the fullness of the means of salvation. Uh, the church and parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. That's not taught in the scriptures. In fact, the underlying concept of original sin, uh, likewise, is not taught in scriptures with infants being born sinful. First John chapter 3, verse 4, whoever commits sin, commits sin, also commits lawlessness. Sin is something you commit. Uh, Romans chapter 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 18, general principle, that the soul that sins shall die. Infants have not had the opportunity to commit sin. Hence, infants do not meet the qualifications of needing to be saved. Of course, along with baptism, Romans chapter 10, 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, something infants cannot do. Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned, something infants cannot do. So only those who believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, you know, Lord of Lords, repent and confess Jesus and be baptized. Infants cannot. Again, Romans 10, 10, uh, Romans 10, 17, Acts 2, 38. Uh, in addition to that, what they call baptism is not according to the New Testament pattern in terms of the method, if you will. You know, if you look at the underlying definition of the term baptism, it means an immersion. Of course, you do, they don't immerse infants. They sprinkle some water or pour some water on them. But the underlying Greek term within the New Testament of baptism, you know, John the Baptist, uh, is immersion, to immerse or submerge, to, you know, overwhelm. Uh, which is a perfect picture of Jesus's death, burial in the tomb, and resurrection, you know, raised to walk a new life. And of course, the New Testament makes that same parallel, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried, and of course, burial in water has that uh, symbolism, with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Uh, so, you know, the concept of original sin, the concept of, you know, sprinkling some water on infants shortly after birth to make them saved and a member of the church, and then later they have to be taught. You know, again, that's foreign to the scriptures, right?
many, many different doctrines here. And so let's just look at a couple more. One is related to the Lord's Supper. When we say Lord's Supper, for those that may not be familiar with that term, before Jesus died, he established a memorial to remember his death on the cross. And part of that memorial included partaking of unleavened bread and what we call fruit of the vine, grape juice, in essence. Well, there's a Catholic belief called transubstantiation, where there's a belief that when we partake of these emblems, that it becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. So here's a quote from the Lateran Council in 1215 that says, Transubstantiation is the change from bread and wine to the actual body and blood of Christ, performed at the consecration of the Mass. Now notice that this is another doctrine that was adopted hundreds of years after the laws were established, specifically the doctrine or the truth around the Lord's Supper by Jesus in the first century. So the other thing that's kind of interesting about the Catholic Church, they have this clergy-laity distinction, clergy being like priests, laity being the common layperson or, you know, just members, anybody that might just be a member. And when they partake of this communion or supper, if you will, they're given the body and blood in the form of a single wafer. So that's kind of interesting because... Of course, Jesus distinctly in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 29, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it. So you have bread, unleavened bread here, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them and saying, Drink from it, all of you. So we clearly see here bread and this fruit of the vine given separately partaken of separately. He goes on in verse 28, so say, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, he brought about his father's kingdom. And from that point on, every first day of the week, according to Acts chapter 20, verse seven, we see they came together to break bread. So we have when they did it, we know that they partook of both the bread and the fruit of the vine to remember his body and blood. Now, when we think about this verse and how it can be taken out of context to mean that Jesus, when he says, take eat, this is my body, that it was literally, he was talking about literally his body. Well, no, he was speaking figuratively there when he talked about his body and his blood. And so we don't want to take that literally because it wouldn't make sense for it to transform into something like that literal body and blood in fact you can look at like john chapter 10 verse 7 john chapter 15 verse 1 where jesus also made figurative statements like i am a door i am a vine well do we think he was speaking literally there no jesus used many figurative examples so for us to think that he once again intended for his body and blood to become literal just doesn't make sense so anyhow that's what the bible has to say about the lord's supper jeff it's kind of interesting that and this is a little bit of a, a side observation but every time uh, catholics celebrate mass they are claiming a miracle is happening mm, yes right and that sort of tie back to miraculous works is in some ways kind of a characteristic of the catholic church 
because they have uh, you know, allegedly, you know, devout Catholics are able to perform miracles. That's one of the signs that allows them to take deceased Catholics and elevate them to become saints. Uh, allegedly, miraculous manifestations of Mary, for instance. So there's this kind of a, kind of woven into Catholicism is this sense of ongoing miraculous revelation through the Pope as well as miracles that are being performed, including at every single time the Mass is observed, as you mentioned, within the New Testament pattern. On the Lord's Day, within Catholicism, they celebrate Mass any day, all days, which is kind of another aspect. Well, and it's interesting you mention that, because I've been to, for instance, I went to a funeral at a Catholic church for somebody that I worked with that died, and they partook of it then. At the funeral. So you're right. It's it's not just the first day of the week. They take it on many occasions. So anyhow, yeah, yet another area where they conflict with what the Bible teaches. Right. Another aspect we might uh, mention is that of purgatory. According to the Council of Florence in 1439, there is an intermediate state or place called purgatory where the dead go to suffer punishment until they can be purified. Uh, quote, these people have not fully made amends for their failings, so must atone for them by suffering before being admitted into heaven. Again, that's according to the Council of Florence in 1439, not according to the New Testament. You know, the Bible does not teach of any sort of a concept or principle of purgatory, because according to the New Testament pattern, once we die, our destiny at that point is fixed. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and as it is appointed for men to die once after this, the judgment. We see this illustrated in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, where both died. Of course, whatever happened to their bodies is not recorded, but their disembodied spirits show up in Hades with no ability of moving from one section to another, certainly no mention of an intermediate state called purgatory. Yet again, a tradition of men not founded within the scriptures. Brian? One other one we'll take a look at, and then we'll move on to some questions that have been submitted about this. And that is something that some might call the doctrine of Mary or a creed from a document called Glories of Mary. And there are some beliefs in there that are not found in the Bible. For instance, that Mary is in essence like a facilitator of the forgiveness of sins between man and Christ. So, for instance, in this book, there is a statement that says, St. Bernard gives encouragement to the sinner and says, Go to his mother of mercy and show her the wounds which thy sins have inflicted upon thy soul. Then she will certainly pray her son that he may pardon thee by the milk with which she has nourished him, and the son who loves her so much will certainly hear her. Well, Jesus is our mediator between us and God. God forgives the sins. We pray through Jesus to God. So we don't see anything about praying to Mary in the scriptures. In fact, we have some really good articles on our website about praying to Mary that you can look at. But the truth is, as 1 Timothy 2.5 says, right, there's only one mediator. So we go to God through Jesus. Mary's not involved. We don't pray to her. She's not a go-between or a mediator. There's also some thoughts around you know, salvation and how Mary can help to facilitate those. And the, the Bible makes it clear in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if you look in the context of that passage, Acts 4, verses 10 through 12, it's talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, verse 10, that he is the stone by which was rejected by the builders and has become the chief cornerstone, verse 11. And so there is not salvation by anybody but Jesus. Under some of these other doctrines about Mary, there is this thought that she's a perpetual virgin and has never been defiled by man. Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 25 said that Joseph did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Well, the knowing there was that he had sexual relations with her. So she was not a perpetual virgin. How about the idea that she was conceived and born without original sin? Well, that's called the Immaculate Conception. Once again, Jeff touched on earlier, there is no such thing as original sin. And so the idea that she would have been born without original sin, well, that actually applies to everybody. Because God created us in his image, made man upright, but he sought out many schemes. Ecclesiastes 7.29. Anyhow, there are passages that talk about, like Romans 3.23, that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So that's how we are sinful, not because we're born into the world sinful. So Jeff, I think you have one other one, right, that we want to talk about as it relates to this, some of the doctrines about Mary. Well, and in some ways, Catholics elevate Mary almost to a position of deity. I mean, when you look at all these doctrines uh, that we've mentioned so far, and this veneration, certainly the uh, Catholic Church has fostered the veneration of the Blessed Virgin through various Mary-specific devotions, Mary-specific feast days, prayers, local churches that are named after her, formal recognition, allegedly, of Mary appearing to people at various times in various places, praying to Mary, statues of Mary, offering candles to Mary, etc. And when, when you look at all of that, you know, the Bible basically has nothing to say about praying to the dead nothing to say about elevating the dead into positions of sainthood. In fact, within the New Testament scripture, living Christians are called saints, not dead Christians. So just a whole accumulation, if you will, of man-made traditions, in this particular case, focusing on Mary. Yeah, that's a very good point. And the Bible, as much as, yes, she was the mother of Jesus, and we love her for that. The Bible gives her zero distinction in any way in the scriptures as it relates to what you just mentioned. Uh, in fact, the, after the crucifixion scene where Jesus kind of makes John responsible for taking care of his mother, Mary disappears from the biblical narrative. Yes. She certainly does not have a major role within the church. You know, her death is not recorded. Her alleged resurrection is not recorded. Her alleged ascension back to heaven bodily is not recorded because it <laughs> didn't happen. Yeah, and much like the office of the Pope and other things, I think the biggest point here we want everyone to consider is that we can only do what the Bible tells us. And when the Bible doesn't elevate Mary, when the Bible doesn't specify anything like an office of a Pope or the position of cardinals, those kinds of things, we have to reject it as an invention of man. So now we want to move into kind of our last phase of this podcast, and that is answering some questions that have been submitted about 
this subject about Catholicism and so forth. So, Jeff, the first question for you comes from Maurice. Maurice says, according to the book of Mark in chapter 16 and verse 19, the Lord Jesus was taken up to heaven and sat at the right side of God. Now, what about Virgin Mary? I often heard the Roman Catholic priest say that Mary, too, was resurrected and taken up to heaven. But I have never come across that in the Bible. Right, and as honestly we said a few moments ago, that's correct. The Bible is totally silent on such an event. Uh, sometimes that is called the assumption, uh, you know, Mary into heaven. Uh, evidently, amongst Catholics, there's some disagreement of whether she was taken to heaven living or whether she died and was resurrected. But setting that aside, you know, if you go back and uh, read why they believe it, it's based on, quote-unquote, once again, oral traditions and or books of doubtful origin According to secular history, it wasn't celebrated or acknowledged until roughly the 5th century. That's like 400 years after Jesus established his church. I'd also mention that this uh, concept of the Assumption is also celebrated by Lutherans and some limited numbers of branches of the Anglican Church. And yet, as, as we said before, this is yet another example of elevating Mary to the point of, as I said, almost being a goddess. You know, the quote-unquote mother of God, as we said earlier, you know, she's prayed to, uh, churches are named after her, statues of her are, you know, people bow the knee, uh, again, almost, you know, as I said, elevating her to a position far beyond that given to her by the scriptures. Any thoughts before I ask you your question? Well, I'll just say, I give credit to Maurice for recognizing it wasn't in the Bible, right, and asking about that. So appreciate his diligence there. Yeah, true. Okay, so a question for you from Hopsterly. If both the Bible of the Roman Catholics and the Bible of the Protestants is the Word of God, why then the Bible of the Protestants falls short by seven books? You know, why is that so? Do these missing books in the Protestant Bible contain important instructions? Yeah, so good question. And, you know, one thing that's important to realize as we've been talking about in our first two podcasts in this series. You know, there are creeds, when you look at both Catholicism and Protestant religions, they have introduced creeds, but they've also, in some cases, modified the Bibles that they use to include books that are not in what we might call the accepted canon, if you will. And so, because these religions were founded by men, and in some cases women, while they were creating these religions... They introduced, once again, in some cases, translations of the, the Bible, or maybe they changed the existing, for instance, and their own creeds, and really other materials as well that are contrary to what the Bible teaches. So when you study what Catholicism and these Protestant religions practice and teach, one thing that we have to come to conclusion of is that they've added to or taken away from God's Word. Therefore, they can't be the church that we read about in the New Testament. Now, when it comes to Catholics, they have made actually more than one translation over the years of the Bible that were approved at their conference of bishops. And when you look into these translations, they are not consistent with what was found in the old manuscripts. And in some of their Bibles actually contain seven additional books not found in the major translations we have today. And so when you think about the mainstream translations, we might call them, or the common translations such as King James, the New King James, the English Standard Version, the American Standard, all of those translations are based on old manuscripts 
that were, were looked at carefully and evaluated carefully so that we can be assured that we have the fully revealed Word of God. In fact, there's a section on our website under the letter T called the Texts of the Bible, where you can find more information about these Bible origins. And would just recommend, if you don't know where the Bible came from, you recorded a couple podcasts about the Bible and the Bible origins specifically. If you go and look at episodes 54 and 55, if you're using a podcast app, you can find uh, where we went through and talked about the origin of the Bible, the reliability of these creeds and those sorts of things. And then also on our website, if you go into the podcast section, you'll see there is uh, Bible origins that also, where also you can access those episodes. Brian, before we kind of wrap up today's podcast on Catholicism, do you have any closing remarks? Yeah, just wanted to mention what we covered today really, in some respects, only kind of scratches the surface of all of the different beliefs that Catholicism has that conflicts with what the Bible teaches. But what we've tried to present today, and hopefully fairly so, by once again looking at what their creeds and stated beliefs are, and just simply comparing them to what God's Word says. And so we encourage you to do the same, not just with Catholicism, but we're going to talk about more religions in this upcoming series. For any of those, please take what they say compare it to God's word so that you can make sure you're following what the truth teaches and not what some man or woman in some cases have written. And to aid our listeners on their search, uh, on their journey in search of truth, would encourage them to go to the website, biblequestions.org. Under the topical index, you can find additional information such as A for authority, as well as A for apocrypha, which is a Greek word for books of doubtful origin, which we mentioned a few moments ago, a B for Bible origins, C for church the true. Since we've mentioned a lot today about Mary, look under M for Mary, mother of Jesus, R for religious titles, like calling people father in direct contradiction to what Jesus commanded us to do, and P for priesthood. A lot of good material, including scripture references, as they seek to distinguish the traditions of men versus the Word of God. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.